you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9. And it reads, verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You know, something that I've found in my own Christian journey as, I, as I've um, been in ministry and, and, and walked my journey with Jesus is that God never forces himself on us. He never makes us think the way that he thinks. He never he he always waits for us to come to terms. You know, when I I used to read my Bible like a maniac. I used to I used to read maybe 3 or 4 or 5 or 6 or 7 chapters every single day. Like I used to just fly through it was like power reading on steroids. And I remember when I started internship here at church, every Monday, for the first sort of half an hour, 45 minutes, Jono would come in to our group for internship, and he'd ask us what we were getting out of our personal devotional time. And everyone would be like, oh, I've been reading Isaiah 52, verse 1, or I've been reading Luke chapter 3, verse 5, or... and it'd get to me, and I'd be like, oh, I read Matthew and Luke and John in one week. <laughs> Because I was just every day, it was power reading. And, like, and they'd be like, oh, wow, and what did you get out of that? And I'd be like, oh, you know, you know, like, Jesus is, Jesus is a good dude. Like, he healed some people or something. Like, when, you're, when I was reading that fast, I was not taking anything in. I was not getting any revelation. I wasn't getting anything out of it. I was just reading for the sake of reading. And as I finished internship and I went through internship, I remember countless times Jono saying, you know, I used to have meeting, like me and Jono catch up regularly and Jono would go, Luke, you need to slow down. Just take one verse. And I think Jono must have said that to me maybe 500 times over the course of a year. Like I just, because I could not get it in my head. I could not get this idea that I needed to slow down. I thought, no, I'm all good. But as I kept going and as life threw situations at me and I would be praying to God, going, God, I need some revelation. I need some help with this decision. And God would give me a verse. God would go, oh, read this, verse 2. But I'd end up opening and reading the whole chapter anyway because I just couldn't help myself because I thought as long as I'm reading it, as long as I'm getting through it. And it wasn't until I got to a point where I could just I was so lost and so like muddled up and I couldn't get anywhere that I finally came to this place of acceptance, this place of, God, I need you to do something. God, I, my way is not working. I need you to do something. And God gave me a verse and I read that same verse for nine months. Nine months, one verse, and that was it. But you see, God, it was in that that God started pouring out revelation and, and pouring out the, and showing me where I had to go forward and, and what I needed to do. But it wasn't until I stopped 
and, and had that moment where I was like, I just accepted my situation that it wasn't working and came to terms with where I was at and then submitted to where God wanted to take me next. You know, God gave us free will. And so often he'll let us get to a place of brokenness. He'll let us get to a place of despair. He'll let us get to a place where we can't go any further by ourselves and where we have to just go, God, I need you to come in and do something. And there's, you know, it's in that that God, God, God brings out his vision and his will and his plan and purpose. But sometimes we don't understand where he's taking us. You know, there's, there's three guys in the Bible that I want to talk about this morning, three situations that these guys face. And these guys, I believe, were masters of accepting their situation and then letting God and submitting to God and letting him take them where they needed to go. And the first guy I want to talk about this morning is Joshua. You might have heard of Joshua. Joshua um, has a whole book by himself. He he was the next leader of Israel after Moses passed away, and he had some big shoes to fill. Moses had been leading Israel for 40 years through the wilderness. And then he passes away, and Joshua gets the task of taking Israel into the promised land. And the first, the, so Joshua takes Israel, they cross the Jordan, they go into the promised land, and the first city they come up to is a city called Jericho. And Jericho is massive. Jericho is this huge walled city. It's got high walls. It's well defended. There was no way into this place. It was, so, it was fortified to the max. And the Israelites have been in the desert for 40 years. They don't have any wood. They don't have any siege engines. They don't have ladders. They have no way of getting into this city. So Joshua pulls aside and he consults God and he says, God, how do I take this city? What do you want me to do? And God, go, God gives Joshua this insane plan. He says to Joshua, I want you to go and get the whole army, armor up, get the priests, dress up, grab the Ark of the Covenant, and we're going to walk around the city once a day silently, not saying a word, for six days. And then on the seventh day, I want you to walk around the city seven times, and I want you to shout and blow trumpets. Now, God doesn't say, then there's going to be an earthquake and the walls are going to come down or anything like that. He just says, walk around the city. So Joshua does it. And I can imagine by like day four, the Israelite soldiers, they're walking around in armor and with all their weapons. And I bet they're like, what the heck is Joshua doing? He's completely lost the plot. We're just walking circles here. It's heavy. It's hot. Jericho's in the middle of a desert. Like this is not fun. And Joshua, at the same time, is probably walking around going, what the heck is God doing? Thinking to himself, it makes no sense. On the seventh day, they blow, walk around the city blowing trumpets. I bet the guys are like, come on, Joshua, we're just making a big racket. Nothing's going to happen. Like, what's going on? But then, all of a sudden, the walls just crumble out of nowhere. You know, Joshua didn't know that was going to happen. The second person I want to talk about this morning is David. David is this kid. He's been anointed by God to be king of Israel, but at this point in time, he's a kid. He's probably about 15 years old. He's out looking after the sheep, and his dad comes up to him and says, hey, David, I want you to go and take some food to your brothers who are in the army with King Saul. 
So David grabs the donkey, packs up, heads out, gets to the battlefield, and he sees this one giant standing in the middle of the battlefield. And the giant is mocking God. He's mocking the people of Israel. So David, being the man of God that he is, goes, I'm going to go have a chat with King Saul and sort this out. So he goes and chats to Saul and says, I'm going to go, God's told me to go out and face the giant. King Saul's like, okay, you can go, I guess, put on some armor. Puts on the armor, doesn't work. And God, God tells David, just go and get five smooth stones and your sling and go out onto the battlefield. So David, this 15-year-old scrawny kid, goes out into the middle of the battlefield against a giant who's armoured up to the max, who's got a spear, who's got a sword, and David's got five rocks and a sling. Like, if I was David in that situation, I'd be like, like, what's going You know, but David picks up one of his stones, throws it, the stone flies, hits Goliath straight in the forehead, buries into his forehead, and Goliath's dead. Goliath's down. Like, the last person... And this one's probably the hardest one, is Job. Job is a godly man. He's the kind of guy that rocks up to church in his suit and tie every Sunday. He's the type of guy that helps people and blesses people, that follows God's calling on his life. He's the guy that just everyone goes, Job is a good dude. And Job is just abundantly blessed by God. He's got heaps of kids. He's got heaps of land, heaps of cattle, fruit trees, crops. Everything's going good for Job. God's just blessed him abundantly. Anyway, Satan goes to heaven and he comes before God and he says to God, I've seen your servant Job. And God goes, yeah, he's a pretty good dude. And Satan's like, well, you see, I I think Job only likes you because you give him stuff. So God goes, okay, take his stuff away. You can take any, all of his stuff away, but you can't touch him personally. You can't touch his body, his health. So Satan goes, and in within a matter of hours, all of Job's kids are killed. His livestock, his lands are burnt down. His livestock pass away. He loses everything he has in a matter of hours. And yet he still stays true to God. And then God comes, Satan goes back to God and says, well, he still loves you because he's got his health. And God goes, take his health. Job ends up covered in boils, outcast from his community, sitting on a pile of ash, scratching the pus out. His wife comes to him and tells him, you should just curse God and die. His friends come to him and tell him what a fool he is for trusting in God, for staying true to God. And yet Job still holds on to God. And God, is, uh, God eventually restores Job's family. He, re, he gives him double what Job had before. But, you know, like, uh, he lost everything. You know, we... Uh, so many of us have kids or possessions or like this story hits so close to home for me because like, I don't know what I'd do in Job's situation. Job didn't have any word from God that God was going to give him back double later on. And like, 
you know, he lost his kids. Like, it, it, that whole situation, and God wasn't talking to Job. God wasn't laying anything out all through that situation. Job didn't know what God was going to do, but he stayed true to God. You know, we all have problems and, and, and worries and stress in life. You know, I, I, I've got an illustration this morning. You know, so often we have big worries, big stress, big problems, and those problems sometimes become so big that we perceive God as small. You know, for Joshua, Jericho was a big problem. For David, Goliath was a big problem. For, for um, Job, his life was a big problem. His life was a struggle. And, and we have big struggles. And because our struggles seem so big, we start to have a small God. And when we put, so we take our small God and we put him in our big problem. And when it doesn't get fixed automatically, when breakthrough doesn't happen straight away, when miracles, we take God out of the big problem, put him over in the corner and go, hey, God, you just stay over there. I'm going to sort out my big problem and then we'll, we'll work something out later on. You know, when I get stressed, when I start to stress, a lot of people would go, Luke drinks a lot of Coke when he's stressed, but that's not actually what I do. When I get stressed, I overload myself with information. So I, if I'm super stressed, I'll get up in the morning and the first thing I'll do is switch on my phone and look at Instagram and Facebook and read about 25 news stories. Then I'll get up and I'll go through the rest of the day and I'm just trying to feel whatever, music, whatever I can put in. If I have a stressful week, I'll read like three or four books in a row. I'll watch a whole bunch of stupid TV shows. Just anything that I can put in that hides my stress. And we all do something similar. Like we all have Coke or coffee or, or a glass of wine or whatever. It could be anything. Like we turn to these things and they, they mask the stress for a little while. But at the end of the day, they don't really deal with the stress or the worry or, or whatever's going on, the problem, the situation. You see, the success of Joshua, the success of David, the success of Job was that they had a real revelation of who their God was. They accepted their situation and they submitted to where God was going to take them. They didn't know that the walls were going to come down. They didn't know that Goliath would go down with one hit. They didn't know that they were going to get restored double what was taken away. But they trusted in God because they knew God. Because the truth is they knew how big God was. Because when you have a big God, he does big things. And when you have a big God, all of a sudden your worries, your stress become little worries and little stress. See, for, for Joshua, Jericho was a big problem. But compared to his God, it was a little problem. See, for David, Goliath was a big problem. But compared to God, he was a little problem. See, compared Job, his life and everything falling apart was a little problem compared to how big his God is. See, because when you put a little problem in the hands of a big God, he does big things. See, he takes down big walls, he, he destroys big giants, and he restores double what was taken away. 
Because that's who our God is. You know, we need to pursue God and know who He is. Because when you see how big your God is, you can accept your situation and submit to Him and follow where He's going to take you. And it doesn't matter whether you know what's going to happen. It doesn't matter whether you understand the situation. You just trust in God because He's a big God. You know, we need to pursue a full HD, 4K, in the real life, in the flesh, knowledge of who God is. That, that we'll have a God who's going to come in and change situations and break down walls and destroy worries because he's a big God. You know, me and Ash recently got married. And just before we got married, we were looking for a house. We needed a house. We needed somewhere to live. And we'd been looking at houses all year. And there, we couldn't afford to get a house until about sort of early October-ish. So we've been looking all year. And all year, there would just been an abundance of houses. And all the time, we're like, oh, that's a great place. That's a great place. Too bad it's in June. And um, we finally got to October where we could start looking. And we started looking. And it was just like the house market, the rental market just crashed. There was just no rental places. So we would be online every single day looking for places, looking for places. And I remember I was, I was getting stressed because we had a deadline where Ash needed to move out. And we started applying for places and some places we didn't apply for because they didn't meet. We had a list of needs that we sort of needed met. And the closer and closer it got to our due date, the smaller and smaller the, the list of needs got until it got to the point where we would just apply for anything. It didn't matter. Like, we're like, oh, one bedroom, doesn't matter. Oh, this house is falling apart, doesn't matter. Like, applying. And I remember just being so stressed. And we went, it was probably like the week of our due date that we were planning on sort of moving Ash out and letting her move in. And we went to the worst place that we had looked at the whole time. And I was like, I do not want to put in an application for this place. But I did anyway. And it was, I, I think it was the day of our due date that we got a letter saying that we had been rejected for the worst house we had looked at. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not joking. This place was disgusting. It was dirty. It, like They hadn't even cleaned it for the inspection. It was gross. The carpet looked like it was 50 years old. It was probably like it was probably someone's dog that had just been left there. It was disgusting. Like it was falling the bits. The bathroom was just not even really a bathroom. You couldn't get clean in there. That's how dirty it was. And we were knocked back, and I was shattered. I was like, "How are we going to find a place? This is the worst place we have looked at." And I remember it was a Friday afternoon, and I was sitting in my office, and I'm like, "I have no idea what I'm going to do." I have no idea. I was overwhelmed. I was stressed. And I just said, you know what? That's it. God, I need you to step in and take care of this. Because I, I, at the start, there was lots of prayer because I was like, God's going to give me a place. God's going to, this is going to be awesome. And the longer it didn't happen, the more and more I stopped praying about it and just kept getting online and looking and looking and looking. And I just stopped and I just said, God, I need you to come in and take care of this situation. I said, God, I know you have a plan and a purpose for my life. I know that you've told me and Ash to get married. I know this is your timing. I need you to provide. 
So I remember I, I went into Jono and I asked Jono to pray and I rang my family and I asked them to pray and I had a whole bunch of people praying and I just said, we need to pray that God does something. Two days later, Monday morning, I'm on my way home from working at school and I get a phone call and I missed it, but it was a real estate. I knew it was a real estate engine, but I missed it. As soon as I pulled into the car park at work, Ash calls me and goes, we got the house. And I'm like, what house? And she's like, the house. The best house we had looked at. The house that we were, we went and did the inspection, we put the application in, and we're both like, there's no way. This is the best place we had looked at. It was the cleanest. It was well looked after. It, was, it ticked every single one of our boxes. Budget, um, location, two bedrooms, the whole everything. It just was the perfect place the absolute best place that we had looked at, and we got it. And I just look back and I go, that was a big God doing a big thing. Because there was no way we were really eligible for this place. Like, we went in there, and the people that were looking at it were way older than us. One lady was trying to move her elderly mother in there and all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, there's no way they're going to let two people who have never rented in their lives live here. Like, it's just not going to happen. But it happened because a big God did a big thing. Because I put my little problem in the hands of a big God and he did something. You know, I love the gospel of Luke. It's my favorite gospel. And a lot of you are probably going, oh, it's named after you because you have the same name. It is, the, it is an awesome name, but that's not the reason. The gospel of Luke is my favorite gospel because it's the gospel that I love the way Luke writes. I love... He's, he was a physician and he, he's very methodical in his writing and it's, very, it's one of the most complete and well-written Gospels. But something that Luke focuses on above all the other Gospels is he focuses on the humanity of Jesus. And I love the human aspect of Jesus. Like we talk about, we know Jesus is God, but he was also fully human. And I love that, that Luke focuses on this. And there's a verse, it's my, probably my favorite verse of all time is Luke 2.52. And it reads, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And I love this. this is, we, we don't have anything, any um, stories about Jesus' childhood except for one story where he goes to the temple. The rest is just this, Luke writes this one cool verse that Jesus grew in wisdom, stature and favor with God and man. And I love this verse because it means that Jesus went through all those human processes. He had to learn to talk and walk and eat and, and read and write. He, he had to grow up physically. He, he went through puberty and, and become into manhood and all, all the things that go along with that. But then he had to grow in favor with God and man. Jesus had to learn how to deal with people. I reckon a lot of that he probably learned working in his father's carpentry shop. You know, if you've ever worked in retail, you know what that's like. Angry customers, disgruntled people, meeting quotas, like all that stuff's going on. And Jesus had to learn all of that stuff. He had to learn how to do The reason he was so successful, I believe, with his 12 disciples was because he probably learned how to deal with people really, really well. But he had to grow in favor 
with his heavenly father. He had to learn how to talk to God. He had to learn how to understand God, how to trust God, how to grow in his relationship with God, to what it means to, to, to be a follower of his God. And it just, it makes Jesus so connectable. Like Jesus lived our lives. He knows what it is to connect with God. And when, after Jesus gets baptized in the Jordan River, he goes into the desert for 40 days. And he fasts in the desert. And at the end of the 40 days, Jesus is weak, he's starving, and Satan shows up and starts tempting Jesus. And he offers Je- first he offers Jesus bread. Like, it's fairly simple, but Jesus is starving. He hasn't eaten or drunk anything for 40 days. And Jesus quotes scripture. And the devil offers him wisdom and power, and Jesus keeps quoting Scripture. See, Jesus had a foundation of pursuing God, pursuing the realness of God. And that's where where Joshua was so successful, was that he had a foundation of pursuing God. He'd spent 40 years under the tutelage of Moses of learning who his God was, of pursuing who his God was, of getting to know everything he possibly could about his God. David spent every day out in the fields with his sheep, pursuing the truth of who God is, singing his praises, getting to know who he was. We don't, I don't know Job's story, but Job is said to be a man of God, and I assume that every day he pursued a relationship with his God. He had a real, real identity of who God was. He knew who his God was. And he accepted, all these guys were so successful in their situations because they knew who their God was. They accepted their situation and they submitted to where he was taking them. Jesus, for Jesus in that field, hunger was a small problem because he had a big God. For, for discomfort was a small problem because he had a big God. The devil was a small problem because he had a big God. You know, I want to encourage you this morning that when you came and put your prayer cards in these boxes, you put your prayers in the hands of a big God. You know, we have a big God. When, you know, we sang the words this morning, all glory be to God alone, all glory, power, and praise. But we sing those words, but do we really believe them? That God has all the power, that God has all the glory, that he's a big God. Because he is a big God. He's bigger than our situation. He's bigger than um, our circumstances. He's bigger than our worries. He's bigger than our stress. I want to encourage you to pursue a relationship with a big heavenly father, with a big God who can come in and change your situation. And, and don't worry about understanding it because God's got a bigger plan and sometimes a big plan is too big for us to comprehend because he's so much higher and so much better than us that it takes time to understand his plan. If the band want to come back, I'm going to, come to a close this morning. I want to go back to that verse that I started with. Isaiah 55 verse 8 and 9. 
And it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You know, I'm not a big fan of New Year's resolutions. Um, never have been. But something I started last year was that at the end of last year, I spent some time with God and I just said, God, I want you to give me a verse or a word or something that isn't for Ash, it isn't for church, it isn't for youth, but it's just for me, something that I can personally pursue, something that I can personally grow in in 2018. And the word God gave me for 2018 was transitions. And 2018 for me was a massive year of transitions. I got married, I moved out, I changed jobs, I changed positions. Like there was a whole bunch of stuff. It was just transition after transition after transition. And over the last few weeks, I've been praying for God's word for me for 2019. And the word God gave me, he gave me two words. He gave me acceptance and submission. Now, I don't really like either of those words particularly. Um, if, if you know me well enough, I'm a person that likes to be in control. I like to know what's going on. I like to be in the loop. But the word God gave me was acceptance and submission. That I would accept that God has a bigger and better plan and purpose for my 2019 than I could possibly imagine, dream of, think up. And that I would submit to what God has called me to do in 2019. That I don't know what that plan is. I don't know what that purpose is. But his ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. He's bigger and, and so much better than I could possibly imagine. And I would submit to where he's taking me, whether, regardless of whether I'm in the loop or not. You know, Isaiah 55 verse 8 and 9 is... A, ver a pair of verses that have frustrated me and fascinated me for the last few years. But I believe that God has placed those verses on my heart for so long because he was bringing me to a place where I needed to accept my situation, accept how big my God is, and submit to wherever he's going to take me. And that would be, I want that, that's my prayer for our church for this year, that we would accept how big our God is, accept our situation and then submit and follow him regardless of whether we know what he's doing or not. That, that we would just trust that he's going to do something bigger and better than we can possibly imagine.